You're listening to Transparency Talk with Trustwell, a podcast discussing the latest trends in technology in the food and supplement industries, featuring conversations with regulatory experts, quality and safety champions, and thought leaders across the industry. The podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only. Welcome to today's episode of Transparency Talk with Trustwell. My name is Katie Jones, and I'm the Chief Customer Officer here at Trustwell. Today on the podcast, we're going to discuss the topic of indoor farming and the rise of sustainability in agriculture. In a world grappling with the complexities of food production and environmental conservation, indoor farming presents a practical and promising solution. Indoor farming, also known as controlled environment agriculture, redefines the way we cultivate crops by moving them out of traditional fields and into carefully controlled indoor spaces. This shift offers year-round production, reduces the need for pesticides, and minimizes water consumption. It's not a dramatic revolution, but rather a quietly transformative approach that holds the potential to improve our food system sustainability while addressing the challenges of a growing global population. In this introduction to the topic, we'll take a closer look at indoor farming's role in shaping a more sustainable future for agriculture. And here on the podcast to help us dive into this issue more is Sonia Lowe. Sonia Lowe is the Managing Director of Chalcis Impact, an an impact investment and advisory firm specializing in sustainable food and ag. She was previously the CEO of Unfold Bio, a joint venture between Bayer and Tamasek, which developed next-gen seeds for indoor farms and was later acquired by Seminus Vegetable Seeds. Sonia also served as CEO of Sensei Ag and Crop One Holdings. She's been an angel investor in 16 startups with five successful exits and served on numerous company boards, including Griffith Foods International, Urban Grow, and Heart Dairy. Sonia is a former global technology pioneer recognized by the World Economic Forum and has diverse experience, including roles at Google and in the culinary world. She has lived in 16 countries as a result of growing up with South Korean diplomatic parents, speaks seven languages and holds degrees from Stanford University and Harvard Business School, and is a proud mother of two. Welcome to the podcast, Sonia. Oh, thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Wonderful, amazing introduction. Uh, We're so excited to get experts on the podcast that can dive deeper into topics that um, I think are of a significant interest to our our listeners and our customers who really represent um, food companies across the entire supply chain. And we've watched indoor farming um, grow. It's such an exciting opportunity to see where um, bringing agriculture into you know, more urban areas and what that can open up, obviously, for access to to healthy foods from how it can impact and make, uh, you know, just a, a greater uh, contribution to sustainability and climate change. So in all of that experience, all of those uh, startups and companies and boards, can you start us off and share some lessons learned from your time as an executive, specifically given that experience working up and dance downstream in the indoor growing value chain, um, as well as obviously working on both greenhouses and vertical farms? What are some lessons learned from your time spent? So um, I like to describe myself as the world's unlikeliest lady farmer. 
uh, <laughs> because I really had no intention to grow up to be a farmer um, and uh, ended up investing in an indoor farming venture where the entrepreneur basically failed to launch. Um, and I stepped in uh, thinking I would be there for six months and I was there for six and a half years. <laughs> so um, then the rest, as they say, is history. So um, really, I think having stepped in with the investor lens, um, I've never really abandoned that. And mm -hmm. I think um, the big lessons, which I think the industry itself is learning right now, is this is not technology per se. There are certainly aspects of technology that are within these farms, but at their core, they are farming. Um, I mean, none of these big CA farms are selling their technology. They're selling produce. And... Um, you know, in this early phase, I think we've got a disconnect going on between the type of capital that's chasing venture or very high risk returns um, and the reality that they're selling the product uh, that these big farms produce for $3.99, right? I mean, it is produce. So I think that capital disconnect is a little bit coming home to roost to mix my agricultural analogies. Um, and uh, you know you're starting to see the failure of some of these large farms, you know reorgs of some of the granddaddies like Aero Farms. Um, so I would say that we're probably in phase one or phase 1.5 of this enormously important and significant infrastructure because uh, some of the capital disconnects have gotten in the way. A lot of the entrepreneurs believed that the venture capital spigot was never going to get turned off. Um, you know, and I'm old enough to have seen uh, the venture capital troughs and uh, peaks, right? And we are very much in a trough right now. Um, so in that context, I think if I were giving somebody advice about how to get into the industry or why they would want to be in the industry, the answer is, well, you know, profitable businesses are always more robust and these farms can be run to be profitable, at least at the unit economics level. Um, and then if you want to take venture capital and apply it to your technology development, so to the intellectual property that's going to govern your farm factor or your grow recipes or your seeds, then that probably is truly a venture return. Um, but the farms per se need to be run for profit. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting to see uh, kind of this cross section of tech and uh, and ag, uh, and and what you said is exactly right, which is like at the end of the day. We're selling produce. We're selling a product, um, and yeah. you know you still have to uh, turn a profit. And I do. I think that that um, you know the the days of the the peaks upon peaks, let's say, <laughs> uh, that we've seen in tech, uh, you know, are, are I don't know if they're they're truly gone. Um, but being able to you know actually run a really solid business first and foremost uh, is, is critically important. Um, on top of obviously the uh, you know, the, the tech that goes into it. I laughed when you said, oh, I thought I would advise and invest. And then I ended up staying for 
for years because uh, I think that's like the life of the entrepreneur, right? That you end up like you just you dove right in and you ended up staying. Um, and I made a, a, a similar pivot into tech myself, actually, um, which made me made me kind of smile uh, when you talk through that. Um, we talk a lot about in in food in general. So the the what consumers want or say they want versus you know what then you know maybe what they act upon or then what the food system is able to support. So we think about the perhaps the gap between those two things. What opportunities do you see uh, for innovation to bridge the gap between what consumers want, maybe specifically in terms of sustainability, and then what the food system currently provides? The food system in the developed world, right? So Northern sure. Europe, North Asia, yeah. uh, East Asia, um, and the United States, for the most part, is incredibly robust, right? I mean, Salinas is a machine. Yes. Um, the issue is that um, now we have this enormous machine that was sort of geared up to 19th century standards of scale, right? Huge volume, tiny margins. And all of that in the context of a much more volatile weather um, situation, you know. Um, and I always get a, a little nervous saying this in the rather more conservative um, with a capital C um, groupings in farming, right? Outdoor farmers tend to lean right, uh, not so much left. And um, indoor farming, I think, is probably left of center. Um, but, you know, every year there is more and more climate volatility. And every year, outdoor farmers are finding it harder and harder to make money uh, and that level of production, the scale that they have been accustomed to, and that all of the attendant infrastructure has been built around um, to make that happen. And um, so, you know, had they reached a point of being at maximum sustainability? Yes. I mean, I think no farmer who works at scale is profligate with their inputs. I don't think they're profligate with water. I think they are very, very sustainable within the limits of being an outdoor grower, which is that, you know, most farmers uh, are still spraying. Most farmers are still watering. Um, there is something called uh, flood irrigation, where you flood the acreage first, you let that water dissipate, and then you plant, right? So all of these techniques are focused on optimizing yield um, because that's the way we were going to support our population. There are some people who believe that we have now reached the point of peak food, i.e. the land is producing as much as it possibly can. And in fact, in the United States, we throw away 40% of our food that is grown. 40% so i believe that part of cea's role and opportunity here is to redistribute agricultural infrastructure and you hinted at this in your question which is you know more urbanization i mean 
higher urbanization is happening around the world. It is a major macro trend. So does CEA today address that greater urbanization? And the answer is no, right? So if we look at where CEA has been built, CEA has certainly become more proximate to urban centers or population centers, but for a number of different reasons, whether that's zoning or whether it's form factor, um, you know, the cost of real estate, they're not in city centers. I think there are a couple of farms that are being built and sort of disused office buildings, et cetera, but that's not really the right formula either. Again, that's why I still believe that we're in this phase one, phase 1.5 of CEA's development, because we really haven't cracked that nut. We haven't just, you know, discovered a form factor that is small footprint that's going to go right into a city center that is profitable um, and that serves consumers with what they want. So then another theory enters the race, which is genetics, right? Oh, so we're going to have these farms, these indoor farms that are massive machines that cost an enormous amount of money. And the way that we're going to juice yield and the way that we're going to drive profitability in them is by having seeds that are producing better. Yes. However, your produce has grown every 30 days. The seeds are going to take five to seven years to actually build and to do the research and to test. So um, there is a timing disconnect with that going on. Um, and, you know, if you look at the tomato industry, the greenhouse tomato industry, it took 15 years. Um, so we're sort of right in that first inning, first or second inning. So interesting because I think, you know, we, we get tidbits of this in media coverage to your point, right? It's like, you know, some retailer has, you know, gardens on the roof or there's, you know, some indoor uh, farming it's, gets covered in the times and then that's the <laughs> that's the perception. But in the reality, right, of where, you know, there there is the physical space, real estate um, and or, you know, just ability to do it. Um, it ends up being, you know, looking a little bit more uh, like traditional um, farming, but still in early stages. Uh, so potentially uh, over time, maybe bringing that, you know, further into urban urban centers. You in your current role, so with Chalcis Impact, um, you're active in impact investing um, and have been for quite some time. Uh, let's talk a little bit about kind of the investing investment landscape. So how has the landscape of impact investing in sustainable agriculture evolved over the years? And, you know, what trends do you anticipate will be particularly influence, influential as we look towards the future? I think most of the funds that have invested heavily in um, CEA, and by that I mean right now in this current generation of vertical farming, um, are not so much impact investment funds as just pure venture, right? I mean, they saw this opportunistically as a category that uh, would perform to the venture model. Um, you know, outsized returns relatively rapidly, et cetera, et cetera. And I think where they've gotten a little uh, wrapped around the axle is the fact that, you know, these things are not rapid. Uh, they take a long time to build. They take a long time to come to harvest. And when the harvest happen, they're uh, a little wonky at first. And then you get things dialed in. But again, you're dialing in produce. You're not dialing in tech. So um, I think 
the impact investment world is intrigued by the sort of input savings that CEA offers. You know, in a greenhouse, you're using about 10% of the water of uh, outdoor growing in a vertical farm, you're using 1%. So it's really dramatic on the water savings. Um, on uh, vertical farms, most of them are pesticide free because again, you're inside a sealed building. Why would you need to you know, manage for pests? Um, and, um, you know, in fact, I built uh, farms that were certified kosher a priori. So, I'll, you know, there are many, many vegetables that can be certified kosher, but they're subjected to intense washing. And with that washing, you get bruising, you get decay, you also get, of course, really poor shelf life, and then taste and texture is diminished. Um, with the farms that we built, they were certified kosher before the produce even left the farm, which really was a revolution because it meant that you could have offtake contracts with kosher farmers or sorry, kosher distributors who said, wow, this stuff tastes amazing. And it's, you know, basically not triple washed or, you know, whatever the gold standard is in washing. So um, I think that um, the impact aspect of it from an investor perspective has been intriguing, but I'm not sure that any major impact investors have done anything other than dipping their toes in it or not at all, because Impact investing has much more focused on regenerative agriculture, which is improving uh, both our soil health, animal husbandry um, in outdoor ag. Because really, if you look at the carbon sinking, if you look at um, the, uh, the potential to change our carbon footprint um, sort of as a species, right? Regenerative agriculture is big bang for the buck. Um, and so a lot of major corporations are putting big money behind this. I'm really excited about the work that's being done in regenerative ag. ag. We've got some suppliers that we worked with that are really diving into the space and using it for marketing purposes, right? So we're seeing this kind of um, further connection of what consumers say they want, um, but then really what the food system is actually able to sustain. So for Entities, whether it's investors or entrepreneurs or maybe traditional farmers who are looking to pivot their strategy, um, you know, what are some what are some tips that you have for them? Well, um, I think for the farmers, there is a uh, confusing array of um, both technology solutions as well as methodologies. Right. When you look at sort of a growing equation. Um, the growing equation is actually fairly simple, which is, uh, you know, genetics times management techniques times environment equals P or, you know, phenotype, which is uh, also an indicator. It's a placeholder for yield. Right. So um, any one of those things can be tweaked. And in uh, vertical farming or in CEA, the E and the M are held constant, or you can kind of move them in a way that's very structured. The G, you're dependent on third-party seed supplier. But in outdoor, it's really that E that has been shifting so rapidly that feels like, oh my gosh, it's out of control. And the M is where farmers are scrambling with their management techniques to try to make sense of this ever-changing world, right? So 
Um, when I uh, think about, you know, um, what farmers are already doing uh, and where they can move, there is a whole toolkit that can be brought to bear, right? Um, but it's a challenging time of going through and discerning what the best tools are for me if I'm a farmer in Florida versus if I'm a farmer in Ohio versus if I'm a farmer in California, right? It's very crop dependent. Um, there is, uh, I remember speaking to one farmer last year who said that his neighbors hate it because he's doing no-till farming. Um, you know, he is not using pesticides and all you, 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 drive past his farm and his land versus his neighbors and his neighbors are very neatly plowed furrows right and his land looks completely unkempt and overgrown um and he's getting some hate right um so i think again we're at that very brave pioneer generation of farmers who are going Nope, this is the better thing to do. It's the better thing to uh, engage with the land in a different way, engage with the animals in a different way. Um, and I think CEA is uh, in many ways kind of trying to do the same, right? Which is um, let me uh, just be a better steward. Um, but not one CA farm looks like the other. Uh, so there is a standards war that is being played out because, again, they are all trying to capture uh, that venture capital dollar. And, you know, my usual response to this is, you know, this is not the movie Highlander. There cannot only be one. <laughs> I'm now dating myself, but that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I will not do my Sean Connery accent. Um, so um, it, there, this is a multi-winner market and it has to be a multi-winner market because it is infrastructure. Um, now, I say that, right, but I look at distributed solar, or I look at the solar industry as a proxy um, for kind of novel infrastructure that's come online in the last 20 years. Um, and there are, it's basically an oligopoly. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I think infrastructure is hard. I think perhaps infrastructure are, you know, infrastructure development is a naturally oligopolistic process. Um, where you need to be big and you need to be very strong and deep pocketed in order to survive and thrive. So um, I do wonder if CEA will head in that direction, where instead of there being 20 sort of healthy competitors in the industry, there will be five. Um, you know, and you look at that in telecommunications, you look at that in energy, you look at it in, you know, clean energy. So Again, maybe that is where we are heading uh, with farming, is that there are going to be sort of a big five or a big eight, as opposed to, you know, 20, 30, 100. Uh -huh. Yeah. You know, there's something that you said earlier um, about the controlled environment. Um, this will be my last question. Uh, uh, many of our listeners are in a variety of roles, but mostly leaning towards uh, food safety, supply chain, and when you talked about, you know, indoor ag and being 
a controlled environment, so therefore translating to less water. Um, are, how, are there food safety implications as well? When I think about it's much more controlled, right? So we've seen, you know, E. coli outbreaks in Romaine with runoff from other land or just, you know, birds flying overhead. It is outdoors. So I'm curious of your thoughts and or is that a part of the dialogue in terms of the benefits just from a sheer food safety standpoint? It absolutely is. So uh, this is where CEA wins hands down, right? Um, the bacterial count on a vertically farmed leaf of romaine is one six hundredth the bacterial count of a field-grown triple washed. So that has enormous implications for food safety. And um, I remember a Thanksgiving several years ago mm-hmm. uh, when I was heavily pregnant with my second child. Oh, no, with my first child, excuse me. Um, And I get the phone call. We're being pulled off the shelves. What? What? What's going on? And it's because the sort of annual romaine recall was going on uh, because of the contamination in Yuma. Um, And I said, but we're nowhere near Yuma, Arizona. (laughs) Why are we being pulled off the shelves? Um, And this is when I discovered that um, food safety attorneys work 24-7 and they have hotlines that you can call. Uh, so I called one of them up and I said, hey, you know, we're being pulled off the shelves. And his very sage advice was uh, just go with it. Mm. You know, be a grown up, get your stuff taken off. We know and they know you're nowhere near it, uh, but it's the right thing to do. So we did. Um, and then we went around and we did a show and tell uh, with um, consumers, with our retailers and said, listen, this is where we're grown. This is how we're grown. And um, uh, this is why we're nowhere near Yuma, Arizona. And interestingly, then it took a couple of years, but uh, CEA grown product in this sort of annual recall of Romaine was not taken off the shelves. Wow. So. The consumer and the retailer are starting to understand that CEA is fundamentally different in terms of cleanliness. Um, I think the retailer always understood uh, that the product was very clean because the shelf life was so long, right? So you can take a, I mean, how many of us have bought a bag of lettuce or, uh, you know, a clamshell of lettuce and three days later, the bottom third is goo. Um, Uh And you think, oh, God. Whereas a CA grown product will last in your fridge for 30 to 45 days. Hmm. Um, And again, it's, you know, because it hasn't been handled, um, it's not being triple washed. It Hmm. is, um, it's super clean. So, um, you know, these are things that will start to become more common knowledge uh, because they deliver a real benefit. Um, you know, having said that, again, I would go back to my earlier comment about can the U.S. market sustain 100 or 150 competitors that are spending, you know, 15, 20, 30, 60 million dollars on each facility um, mm-hmm. and growing salad? Uh, the answer is no. And I think the industry itself has figured that out and is now trying to grow higher value um, produce like strawberries. Um, and if you talk to strawberry analysts across um, the country, 
you know, there is a strong belief that 95, 90 to 95 percent of strawberries will move to indoor over the next 20 years. Much mm-hmm. has has happened with, um, you know, snacking tomatoes. So 90 percent of snacking tomatoes in North America are grown in greenhouses. Um, but that transition took 15 to 20 years to happen. Right. 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 So we are in I mean, like basically the anthem hasn't even been sung. <laughs> well, right. you are um, clearly a key figure uh, out there uh, starting the song. <laughs> so um, thank you. This has been incredibly informative. Um, as I mentioned, many of our listeners are, you know, in, in among retailers, food service operators or, you know, major food manufacturers who are, I think, you know, looking at this area as, uh, you know, as something very interesting, a potential, obviously, from a sourcing perspective down the line, and really appreciate your insight and uh, into a, um, for us on the podcast, a really new topic. So thank you, Sonia, so much for your expertise. You're very welcome. And it's lovely to meet you. <laughs> well, thank you again for tuning into Transparency Talk with Trustwell. A quick heads up, we have our sixth annual user group conference reconnect coming up. It is virtual and it is open to all of our customers and anyone in the food industry. If you're interested in hearing about how food companies around the world are modernizing their supply chain, enhancing their recall processes, um, implementing traceability. We have a speaker from the FDA as well as the National Restaurant Association. Lots of really great content, all virtually from the seat in your home or uh, or your office. We will include a link to the registration in the podcast notes. Once again, thank you so much for listening to Transparency Talk with Trustwell. Thank you for listening to Transparency Talk with Trustwell. To learn more about Trustwell and its technology platform that connects product formulation, nutrition analysis, and compliant labeling with traceability, recall readiness, and supply chain transparency, please visit www.trustwell.com.